What do you picture when you hear climate change? A fire or a flood in your hometown? Or something more distant, like a struggling polar bear? People responding to some natural event? Or a changed landscape? Disturbing images associated with climate change are widespread, but most of us only have hazy ideas about how our own California communities are likely to be affected. This podcast aims to change that by exploring climate change through the day-to-day experiences of people across the state. Over the coming episodes, you'll hear from youth in their teens, a climate scientist at UC Berkeley, activists, and people working in local, state, and tribal government. You'll learn how California is expected to change within your lifetime and what you and your friends and neighbors can do about it. You're listening to Future Imperfect. I'm your host, Shane Carter. In this first episode, we'll be starting with the big picture. I started my interviews on September 20th, 2019, a day when millions of people around the world took part in climate strikes, many of them organized and led by young people in their teens. I continued talking to people through COVID, through schools moving online, and through the day that fires turned the skies bright orange all day here in the San Francisco Bay Area. In each conversation, I tried to understand how people interact with their environment in their daily lives, what they're thinking about climate change, and what, if anything, they're trying to do about it. To understand how climate is likely to change in California, I turned to the regional reports from California's fourth climate assessment. These reports divide the state into nine regions based on their geographic features. Each one outlines localized climate predictions drawn from the research of thousands of scientists. Nine episodes in this series are built around these regions. Others look at major themes that cut across the state, fire, water, agriculture. There will also be episodes about activism and how to get involved in local government efforts to adapt to climate change. When I first started the project, I reached out to a woman studying climate science at UC Berkeley. My name is Nancy Freitas, and I am in the Energy and Resources group at UC Berkeley, and I study climate change, uh, specifically how climate change is affecting the Arctic. Nancy listened to my interviews with students and talked with me about them. She addressed questions, cleared up scientific misconceptions, and brought a scientist's perspective to our discussions. You'll hear more about her work later. But first, let's all get on the same page. What is global climate change? Here's the story told through the voices of people ages 9 through 18, based on what they've learned in school, online, from parents and friends. You'll also hear a few interjections and clarifications from Nancy. The earliest thing I knew about it was just the three R's, reduce, reuse, and recycle. With all of our our trash um, not going into the right places, and it's ending up in the ocean. I think it's just because of us. We're kind of making the world, like, dirty. If we didn't have the greenhouse effect, all our water would be frozen. and We wouldn't have life on Earth. But excess greenhouse, you know, would trap the IR photons from, you know, leaving our atmosphere. Here's Nancy. Let's start with a process known as the greenhouse effect, which is the idea that the Earth is functioning just like a greenhouse does. We're effectively like the living things inside of the greenhouse, and then the glass on the edges of the greenhouse functions like our atmosphere does. The greenhouse 
effect works by allowing sunlight to enter the greenhouse, um, where it's absorbed by the plants and the surfaces, and some of it is actually reflected back out of the greenhouse. But on its way out, um, the glass, which again is the greenhouse gases in our atmosphere, it traps a lot of that energy and it actually re-reflects it back down towards the plants and the surfaces. And this happens many, many times. And that overall effect causes the greenhouse to heat up to a warmer temperature than it is outside of the greenhouse. Since the earth was like, you know, created, it had like a level of emissions by itself, which were, was okay because then the trees would like take that like CO2 and then transform it to oxygen. It'll be like, it was like a normal cycle for the earth. Humans are having a very, very large impact on the earth. I know that we're putting um, greenhouse gases and so much carbon dioxide into our environment that it's like just heating up our atmosphere. Large corporations are extracting and burning fossil fuels at an exponential rate. The types of emissions, fossil fuels, uh, carbon emissions and... Uh, Like methane and nitrous oxide, fracking and mining for gas and oils. Fossil fuels are a big contributor to like factories, um, driving cars. Plastic isn't like helping with that situation too. You know, natural gas and all that stuff that goes into the air, it heats up our earth. The more of it that we release, the more of it the earth retains. It definitely becomes a lot hotter and that heat can lead to dire consequences. We are having to like relook at our lifestyles. What is, like how exactly did we get into climate change and like when did it like it become like so bad? Since the industrial revolution, which really took off in the mid 1800s, humans have been adding to the greenhouse effect. So it's no longer just a natural process, but we're intensifying the process. And the reason is that we've been burning fossil fuels and releasing more greenhouse gases to the atmosphere. So we're essentially thickening the glass around our greenhouse, and we're trapping more and more heat inside of that greenhouse. When I'm talking to really young people, I like to explain it like this. Right now, our planet, our Earth, has a fever. And when you think about a fever in yourself, once you get to like, 105 fever that's you're you're approaching death and that is where we are what have i heard about climate change i've heard it used to be called global warming but scientists now prefer the term climate change well everywhere is not changing at the exact same pace uh, or seeing the exact same effects at the same time on average the earth is becoming warmer and this is what we think of as global warming, the average temperature increasing within our greenhouse, so our planet. I do know that at first I would just hear global warming, global warming, global warming, and then I started hearing climate change, climate change, climate change, and I was like, what? (laughs) Um, But I did realize that they they are the same thing, right? Like, I guess, in a way. Climate change describes a broader series of effects that come from the average warming of the planet. So warmer conditions might lead to changing patterns of rainfall um, or warming of the oceans and sea level rise. It might lead to and is leading to melting of glaciers and other ice, which affects um, 
atmospheric circulation, ocean circulation, increasing sea levels, changing the areas where crops can grow, where humans can grow um, and live and survive uh, in the world. Some, especially marine animals, some have a very specific um, temperature that they can live in or range. And if they go over that, then they can start to die. Does it also create ocean acidification? The ocean exchanges gases with the atmosphere. Um, It's not like there's a lid on the ocean. And there are gases that are able to be absorbed into the ocean. Carbon dioxide um, is one of those. And about 25% of our atmospheric carbon dioxide is actually absorbed into the oceans, which is huge. Uh, We call the ocean a sink for carbon dioxide. But right now what's happening is that we're putting a lot of additional carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And so the equilibrium that had been maintained between the ocean and the atmosphere is changing. Mm -hmm. And so more carbon dioxide is being absorbed into the ocean. So generally carbon dioxide is converted into three different constituents once it's absorbed into water. Carbonic acid, so the important word there is acid, Mm -hmm. bicarbonate and carbonate. So carbonate, is usually um, what like corals and mollusks, some algae use to make their homes or use to function, right? So they create shells out of them. But the more that carbon dioxide is absorbed into the ocean, the more carbonic acid we get. And that carbonic acid serves to degrade the corals and the mollusks and the carbonate that exists um, within the homes of those species. So ocean acidification is impacting our corals, right? And in addition to higher temperatures, um, we're seeing bleaching um, of those corals. And that's extremely sad for the ecosystem, right? Because, I mean, it means that like, if one part of an ecosystem falls apart, all of the food webs that are attached to that begin to collapse as well. But humans are also a part of that. And a lot of our economic sustainability on coasts comes from diversity of fish, diversity of different shelled species, and humans are very tied to the water. And so when these ecosystems collapse, so can you know the economics of populations of people who live on the coasts. Before a misconception when we were calling it global warming is like, oh, we're just going to burn up. But what it amounts to is extreme weather patterns, which means super cold winters and super hot um, summers, change, change weather patterns in general, rising sea levels, extinction. Icebergs are melting and this hot place is getting hotter and this cold place is getting colder. And there are more natural disasters happening. It's melting glaciers and rising the sea seawater and everything else. And it's really a scary thing. I think the temperature tra- increasing melts the polar ice caps or something like that, which then could create flooding or put, you know, a lot of the coastal areas like Miami, Florida under the water. Yeah, with like housing that's like close to the ocean. If it rises, then like the house is no longer there. So it's like relocation for people who live really close to the ocean. When you think about sea level rise and Miami suddenly underwater, uh, what do you imagine the people who currently live in Miami doing about that? I don't know, something like, you know, a whole a whole city we know being under the water seems just, 
it's it's you know it could be very near if we don't do anything but it also just as if the moment seems very intangible what would happen if all the glaciers melt like i've i've always been curious like what would happen or like how long till they all melt or like how much time do we have or like could we reverse it like i've always been curious of that good question ivan um <laughs> scientists are trying to figure this out as we speak my immediate answer is that as we know, glaciers are made up of frozen water. Um, and so as that water, as that ice melts into water, that water has to go somewhere. And so if we're thinking about like polar areas, um, that water, a large part will enter the oceans um, and contribute to sea level rise. And there are lots of projections right now about just how much sea level will rise but it also depends on where you are in the world. Like the sea level rises that will be happening on the coast of California are potentially different than those that are going to be happening, you know, else, elsewhere in the world. But generally speaking, um, sea levels will rise. And um, the other thing that's really interesting that has gotten a lot of discussion recently is about how those changes will affect ocean circulation. Because there's this um, kind of conveyor belt that happens in the oceans where water near the surface is warmed um, by the sun. And then as it moves towards the poles, it sinks because it gets colder. And then it like kind of filters, swings back around near the poles and then comes back towards the middle of the globe near the equator. And um, so as those poles begin to warm up, I personally am not totally sure how that conveyor belt will change, but there, there has been discussion about the fact that it it could. And we know that, you know, lots of different animals and uh, people too um, depend on that, that circulation pattern for, for animals, maybe breeding for humans, maybe catching fish. Um, it determines migratory patterns. So there are a lot of connections to uh, like glacial melts that, that we don't immediately think of. The question about glaciers came from Ivan in Delano. If you're wondering about the other young people you're hearing from in this episode, check the Future Imperfect webpage at calgloboled.org. You'll find their first names listed there. Now, as Nancy indicated, scientists can't pinpoint the exact temperature tipping point at which glaciers would begin rapidly flowing into the sea. The U.S. Geological Survey says on their website, quote, there is still some uncertainty about the full volume of glaciers and ice caps on Earth. But if all of them were to melt, global sea level would rise approximately 70 meters, approximately 230 feet, flooding every coastal city on the planet. But as you just heard, we'll have serious problems well before we reach that point. Melting glaciers will likely cause changes to ocean currents, which will change both marine ecosystems and our weather. It's kind of scary because it's like my generation is the one that's going to have to live through it. And that the air quality, it made people who had asthma very, it made them really harder to breathe. And especially if you have like some type of disease like that, like it's very hard for them. There's going to be humans and animals that may not be able to adapt to this and just have a harder life and just may not be able to continue on in their life. The poles are going to start melting. There's going to be floods everywhere. Uh, climate change is going to be like really, really bad unless we start acting like 
well, we should have started back in like since it hurt since 19, 1950s. You know, every single time like a, another hurricane comes, um, it's like more powerful and like the winds are getting stronger and stuff like that. It affects, you know, impoverished populations more. If it gets really extreme, what will start happening is because of drought and sea rise levels, there will be mass displacement, which will cause spread of diseases. There will be famine. There will be, literally, we will be living through an apocalypse. That was a tremendous amount of, frankly, terrifying information. But scientists and climate activists agree that it is possible for us to have a good future instead of a catastrophic one. To get to that good future, you need to understand what it actually means to quote-unquote fight climate change. To explain, I'm going to focus on three concepts. Mitigation of climate change, adaptation to climate change, and climate justice. Before we start, one quick clarification. The young people you just heard from did not get a chance to prepare for this or look anything up. It was basically a closed book pop quiz administered by me, a total stranger, at the drop of a hat. And as you heard, they know a lot. But there was one area of confusion that showed up so frequently. I think it is worth correcting. I'm not trying to embarrass anyone here. Almost a third of the young people I spoke with were a little confused about this. It has something to do with the hole in the ozone layer. Burn holes in the ozone layer. Ripping holes in our atmosphere, and it's bringing more heat in onto our Earth. Causing holes in the ozone layer, and then in turn, because of their, these holes in the ozone layer, the sun is more easily able to heat up our Earth. The ozone layer has opened up over the South Pole, and it opened up many years ago, in part because humans were putting a lot of um, refrigerants into the atmosphere and um, chemicals that participated in breaking down ozone. And while this did let in additional UV radiation, it's not contributing to warming our climate. So climate change is actually completely separate from um, the destruction of the ozone layer. Ozone can be beneficial for humans or harmful to us, depending on where it is, down on the ground, or way up in the stratosphere, or in between. The important point is that fundamentally, our globe is heating up because greenhouse gases are keeping heat from leaving our atmosphere, not because there is a hole letting extra heat in from the sun. That's why any solution needs to focus on reducing greenhouse gases. Let's talk about mitigation and adaptation. The first part of fighting climate change means keeping the Earth's average temperature from rising more than 1.5 degrees Celsius above the average temperature in the mid-1800s, which is when industrialization really got underway. For those of you more comfortable thinking in Fahrenheit, that's about 2.7 degrees. So that means the average temperature of the Earth in about 1850 plus 1.5 degrees Celsius, and that's our limit.
That number, 1.5 degrees Celsius, comes from the 2018 and 2021 IPCC reports. That's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change reports. To achieve this, to stick within that temperature limit, we need to radically reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. The more we can limit global warming, the less intense climate changes will be. And I want to be clear, we will still experience lots of effects of climate change at plus 1.5 degrees. We'll still see significant changes in our natural environment and our weather patterns. However, at that temperature, we should have the resources to adapt our infrastructure and our institutions to manage those changes. So limiting the temperature increase in this way is called mitigation. You may be thinking, 1.5 degrees Celsius doesn't sound like much. Amber in San Diego thought the same thing when she first learned about it. The weather was too great for me to wonder about the consequences of the Earth raising by one or two degrees, which is highly misleading. She was telling us that the Earth is rapidly, like, rapidly heating up, but she was also saying, like, oh, like, a few degrees, but I don't think youth really, like, can gauge that because they don't understand how drastic, actually, like, a few degrees is. One of the important issues that I think we should also address is this one from Amber about how to think about a rise of one to two degrees. I picked that out of her interview as well and thought that that was really impactful to hear about because we, as scientists, talk about one to two degrees of climate warming, and that's not an intuitive concept. I think for most people, actually. Like, oh, if the temperature changes, if it goes from 95 degrees to 97 degrees, I mean, it's kind of hot, and then it's kind of hot. It doesn't really impact me all that much. But I think the difference there is that we're thinking about weather events and we're not thinking about climate. Um, and so there's a big distinction between how weather changes from day to day or from hour to hour or week to week versus how climate changes over the course of maybe 10 years or 20 years or 30 years. And so the distinction I want to make there is that weather is what we as humans experience on a day-to-day or on a year-to-year. But climate is the larger average of those weather patterns over a long period of time. Um, And so a one to two degree change in those climate um, patterns over time can have huge impacts on a local and a regional scale that are not represented by a one to two degree increase. So here's a specific example. According to the U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA as it's usually called, in 2020, the average temperature in the contiguous 48 states was 54.4 degrees Fahrenheit. That was 2.4 degrees hotter than the average for the whole 20th century. But as Nancy said, you don't experience average climate. What you experience is daily local weather events. So for example, On September 6th of 2020, that same year when the average was 54.4 degrees, the temperature in Woodland Hills, California, near Los Angeles, hit a high of 121 degrees Fahrenheit. Spikes like that are what help account for the increase in the average. The second goal in responding to climate change is using science-based predictions to adapt to expected climate changes. (music) 
Predictions give governments and communities the tools to plan for climate changes so that natural events don't turn into overwhelming political, social, and economic crises. I want you to notice I'm avoiding the phrase natural disaster here for a reason. In the case of an earthquake or a massive rainstorm, things like building codes and stormwater infrastructure can prevent deaths. They can keep buildings from falling down. They can save neighborhoods from flooding. We can't prevent all the negative effects of these natural events, but if we significantly lower greenhouse gas emissions and plan ahead, we have the resources to keep a lot of those natural events from turning into disasters. To do this, we need to make our infrastructure and institutions more able to withstand natural events. We already do this in big and small ways. So for example, maintaining shade trees in urban spaces is a way we protect neighborhoods from high heat. As we prepare for climate changes, this means analyzing everything from wastewater treatment plants to community centers to parks. And making these kinds of changes is called adaptation. So those are the first two parts of having a good future, mitigation and adaptation. But where did that temperature limit come from? And what is the basis for these climate predictions? Learning about Nancy's work is a good window into thinking about these predictions and understanding the role scientists are playing in fighting climate change. So I work up in the Arctic, which is the North Pole, and I'm studying lakes. We know that the Arctic is starting to warm due to climate change. And because of this, the permafrost or the permanently frozen ground is thawing. And when it thaws, it means that there's more water on the landscape. And that water often pools into lakes and small ponds. So what I'm trying to figure out is how to represent lakes in climate models. So what does Nancy's work have to do with keeping global temperatures from rising more than plus 1.5 degrees? And more importantly, what is a climate model? To answer that, I need to take you on a little bit of a conceptual detour. Think about the weather report. It does not matter if you're picturing an app on your phone, a website, or something on TV. Anytime you want, you can find a prediction for the weather, often 10 days out into the future. Have you ever stopped to wonder where that comes from? Weather prediction as we now know it only really got going in the 1950s as a result of the rapid global communications that developed during and after World War II. The simple weather prediction you see today is generated by feeding huge amounts of real-time data from all over the world into mathematical models that then predict how all the forces that make up the weather will interact together. And then those results are interpreted by meteorologists. Meteorologists have been working for decades to tweak weather models using new data and new technologies to improve their accuracy and the level of detail they're able to provide. You may not have any idea how weather models are constructed or what data goes into them, but you do know how to use a weather report. So for example, you know the weather prediction for tomorrow is probably accurate, whereas you should not make firm plans based on the prediction for a week from now. If the prediction calls for scattered showers tomorrow, you know you might want to carry an umbrella, but you also know there's no guarantee it's going to be raining in your neighborhood at exactly the time you head out for lunch. My point is, you can and do make plans based on the predictions generated by these models. Climate scientists also construct models. 
But rather than trying to predict the specific weather in a particular location on a particular day, they are working to predict how our whole global climate is likely to change as the Earth warms. This is what Nancy means when she says climate model. Thousands of climate scientists all over the world have been contributing to the development of climate models for decades now, providing data from new research that is then used to make them increasingly accurate. There's a lot of information that goes into these really complicated uh, climate models, and lakes oftentimes aren't incorporated into them. And it's because lakes are pretty complicated. They exist between the soil and the atmosphere, and uh, of course, there's water and a whole ecosystem involved in that, that intermediate space. So, rising global temperatures are causing permafrost to melt. The melted water that used to be stored as ice in the permafrost is pooling into new Arctic lakes, and then further thawing more permafrost under that water. The big question is, how do these newly forming lakes affect our atmosphere? What we're finding is that as the climate begins to warm, these lakes can actually release carbon dioxide and methane in greater quantities than they have been in the past. And they may not just be carbon sinks, but they now may be becoming important sources of carbon to the atmosphere. So that means the reason they need to be put into models is because as the atmosphere warms, we need to start thinking about lakes as not just neutral things or even things that absorb carbon, but carbon dioxide, but actually an added emitter of greenhouse gases. Definitely. And to be a little bit more clear about that, um, it's not the water itself that is producing the uh, greenhouse gases, but it's actually the soil and the sediment below the lake uh, that is thawed out by the water um, that moves down into the profile from the lake. And when it does that, it, it thaws the permafrost. And once that permafrost thaws, there are microbes in that permafrost that begin to wake up. And when they do that, um, they're hungry, and so they start eating plant material around them, and they start releasing greenhouse gases. And these are greenhouse gases that have not been part of the overall carbon budget in our atmosphere for hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of years. Nancy uses two important terms here, carbon sink and carbon budget. A carbon sink is something that stores carbon in various forms. So, for example, vegetation around the world is a carbon sink because plants absorb carbon dioxide out of the air as a part of their photosynthesis to live. At the beginning of the episode, you heard Elias and El Centro describe this process. You also heard Nancy talking about how the ocean absorbs carbon dioxide. It's also a carbon sink. The carbon budget is the total amount of CO2 we can add to the atmosphere and still keep the average temperature of the Earth from going no higher than a certain point, in this case, let's say, plus 1.5 degrees Celsius. So why does this matter? What it means is that we haven't accounted for a potentially huge source of greenhouse gas emissions that could be and already are entering our atmosphere. So the models that we rely on are not fully capturing the dynamics of the system and um, potentially not projecting future changes uh, in a way that we, we think is what is going to happen on, on these landscapes. How do scientists actually figure out how much methane Arctic microbes are releasing into the atmosphere as temperatures rise? 
Just before she started her master's program at UC Berkeley, Nancy flew up to Alaska to get some samples of the sediment, that is the dirt, from under one of those Arctic lakes. A team on a project led by Dr. Katie Walter Anthony had extracted a 20 meter long core, that is a skinny 60 foot long cylinder of sediment from under an Arctic lake. Nancy spent several days with the team processing the core. I collected my samples and I shipped them back to UC Berkeley, um, which is where I've been doing my research. And when I got back, I split them up and put them into a bunch of different jars. And those jars are all capped. um, And so nothing enters or leaves those jars without uh, me doing it. So then I took some of the jars and I put them in uh, four degrees Celsius. I took some of them, I put them in 10 degrees Celsius, some in 20 degrees Celsius. So these microbes are warming up, they're getting happier, they're starting to eat the um, plant material and the carbon around them. They're releasing the greenhouse gases. Um, and I've been waiting for the last year, and I've been taking samples from them at different time points to try to figure out if the four degrees looks different than the 10 degrees, if that looks different than the 20 degrees. And then I take my gas samples and I run them on a machine and it tells me the concentration of greenhouse gas that was in each jar at each time point. And so I can track that over the course of a year and see how that changes. With a weather prediction, you know pretty quickly if it's accurate. The weather report predicted sunny skies with wind coming in from the west and you enjoyed a blue sky with light breezes coming in off the ocean. Five-day forecasts are right about 90% of the time, so it doesn't always work out, but it's right often enough to be extremely useful to you. Researchers also check climate models for accuracy, but they have to use a different method. When scientists first build a new model, they do something called hindcasting, where they run the model backwards into the past instead of forward into the future. Once the model is able to reconstruct climate patterns we already know about from the past, then they begin using it to try to predict climate changes in the future. When they get new data, they can incorporate it to improve that accuracy. Nancy's research is one small piece of improving those climate models. So this all leads us to one big question, which comes from Diego in Chula Vista. How much of a change would we have to do to sort of restabilize everything or as much as we can like restabilize because I think probably at this point we sort of done a bit too much to go back to as if nothing happened how much do we need to change like what percentage of all our energy for example needs to come from renewables like is it 80 percent 90 percent There is no simple answer to this question, although climate activists and governments around the world have set certain goals. Let's start out by reminding ourselves of the objective. Limit greenhouse gas emissions so we don't let the average temperature get any higher than 1.5 degrees Celsius above what it was in 1850, when industrialization began to rapidly expand. Right now, we are at almost plus 1.1 degrees. So the question is, how much more CO2 can we release into our atmosphere before we hit 1.5? That amount is our remaining carbon budget. Now you may also have noticed that Nancy said the microbes in the permafrost released methane as they thaw. So why are we just talking about a carbon budget? There are certain gases that can trap that heat 
more intensely than other gases. And that's known as a global warming potential um, for different gases. And so when we think about how strong these greenhouse gases are, we think about how long they stay in our atmosphere for, and we also think about that global warming potential. And so carbon dioxide stays in our atmosphere for a very long time. We're talking, you know, hundreds to thousands of thousand years, and it has what we say uh, is a global warming potential of one. So it's kind of our standard that we look at. But something like methane, which is becoming a greater concern um, in terms of climate change, has a global warming potential that's 25 times that of carbon dioxide. So even though it stays in our atmosphere for maybe decades, it is able to warm the atmosphere even more than carbon dioxide can. In the 2021 IPCC report, estimates of our remaining carbon budget are described in terms of CO2, but they specifically state that the calculations also account for the warming effects of other greenhouse gases, like methane. We've been releasing increasing amounts of CO2 into the atmosphere since the Industrial Revolution really got going. Over the past 170 years, we humans have added about 2,390 gigatons, or billion tons, of greenhouse gas to our atmosphere, and about one half of that in just the last 30 years. Scientists don't all agree on a single number for how much we have left in our budget, because climate models differ, and they are all constantly being updated. I use the IPCC reports because they analyze and synthesize thousands of studies. So what do they say about this? Keeping in mind our average temperature goal of plus 1.5 degrees Celsius, the 2021 IPCC report estimates that we most likely have about 300 gigatons left in our global carbon budget. That may sound like a lot, but we emitted 36.8 gigatons of greenhouse gases in 2019 alone. The report also mentions permafrost and other possible sources of greenhouse gases that may increase as temperatures warm. How much might these other sources affect the carbon budget? Uh, apparently as much as 220 gigatons, which would push the rest of our budget down to 80. So rather than asking what percentage of our power needs to come from renewable sources, it might be better to ask how and when are we going to get to carbon neutrality, that point where the amount of CO2 we emit equals the amount that is sequestered in carbon sinks each year. A lot of climate activist organizations and scientists say that to do this, we should aim for 100% renewable power. And in high energy economies like the US, we should also work a lot on energy conservation. On the other side of the equation, we need to increase carbon sequestration through better use of natural carbon sinks and by using developing technologies to capture and store carbon. I've been speaking globally this whole time, but where's California in terms of this goal of carbon neutrality? In 2006, California passed a law called the California Global Warming Solutions Act, commonly known as AB32, to reduce the state's greenhouse gas emissions. Right now, they're working on the fourth update to the plan, which is setting out a pathway for the state to be carbon neutral by 2045. Earlier in the episode, I told you we'd look at climate change mitigation, climate change adaptation, and climate justice. So far, you've heard that we need to lower emissions to lessen the intensity of climate change, that's mitigation. I also introduced the idea that we can use climate predictions to help us plan for the changes we will experience, that's adaptation. The final concept, climate justice, has to do with how we're going to do each of these things. Consider this question from Jason in Sacramento. 
like how do you think that uh, the effects of climate change will ripple throughout developed countries and uh like how how do you think it's going to like affect like the daily daily lives of uh you know people here jason's question gets at one of the worst aspects of climate change it is already amplifying inequality and unfairness wealthy industrialized countries like the u.s the same ones who have done the most to cause climate change are also in the best position to manage the extreme natural events we're already seeing this is not a coincidence we use fossil fuels to generate electricity and power engines this drives machines from backhoes to computers and those machines are faster and cheaper than the humans and animals they replaced we have used those machines to produce everything from pants to medicines to World War II warships to televisions. This globally expanding, energy-intensive culture of ours is what caused climate change. And I don't mean just the U.S., I mean every industrialized country. But it also made it so that some countries and some individuals got very, very rich. So what does this have to do with how and when we reach carbon neutrality? There is no single answer for how much of our energy needs to come from renewable sources and when. But what we do know is the longer we keep emitting high levels of CO2, the worse it will be for countries and communities with fewer resources. These places are called frontline communities. They're experiencing the impacts of climate change first and worst, and they don't have the resources to prepare or to rebuild from crises. So one path forward that was outlined in the 2018 IPCC report was for the world to get 60% of its energy from renewable sources by 2030, moving to complete carbon neutrality by 2055. In addition to changing our energy sources, we would focus on sustainable practices in everything from agriculture to urban planning to consumption. Temperatures would stabilize at plus 1.5 degrees Celsius. This path includes both cultural and technological changes. But it's also theoretically possible for us to take a different path. And in that one, we would only slightly reduce our use of fossil fuels for another two decades, emitting enough greenhouse gas for the temperature to hit plus two degrees by mid-century. We wouldn't have to do much to change our lifestyles at all. Then, we would shrink our use of fossil fuels and rapidly expand something called bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, um, the acronym is BECS, which would produce energy and draw carbon out of the atmosphere at the same time, eventually bringing CO2 levels back down and then temperatures back down closer to plus 1.5. I personally am skeptical that the countries of the world would be able to cooperate in the face of constant megastorms and heat waves. Those events, plus others, will have severe human impacts, which will, among other things, destabilize governments and cause millions of people to flee their homes in desperation. Other countries are not likely to open their gates and welcome these climate refugees. Rather, if our current situation is any indication, they will probably arm and blockade their borders. Those are not the circumstances under which you want to try to negotiate radical multinational agreements. But even if they could, think about what would happen to people around the world in the meantime. As Jason's question suggested, some people in the world will experience climate change as a catastrophe much sooner than others. And even if the second option I described is a possibility, it's one where we continue to benefit 
while we displace the worst impacts of climate change onto people who did not cause it and can't afford to protect themselves from it. A similar dynamic is playing out within California as well. There are already people who cannot afford air conditioning or who live right next to a power plant or in small towns with private wells instead of city water systems. And just as in the world as a whole, poorer communities in California are disproportionately harmed by the heat waves we're already having, by worsening air quality, by drought. This is not just unfortunate, it is unjust. In his autobiography, Frederick Douglass describes a time when he was still enslaved, when he was sent to a house in Baltimore. The wife of the family begins by being kind to him, teaching him to read, recognizing his humanity, and treating him accordingly. But her husband essentially tells her that her behavior is undermining the institution of slavery. She cannot be compassionate and humane and hold someone in bondage at the same time. The lesson of the account is that a system changes all the people who live within it, not just the powerless ones. I am not currently a member of a frontline community, and you also may be so fortunate. But when I think of the year 2050 at plus two degrees, I think about this account. I wonder, when I am almost an 80-year-old woman, what kinds of horrible things may be done in my name to forcibly keep the international effects of climate change from impacting me here in California? What kinds of things will my own state and town governments do to control my less privileged neighbors as they seek ways to just escape the effects of climate change on their own lives? In other words, who do I become if I support this unjust path? Climate justice means that when we address climate change, we will choose solutions that protect and actively improve the lives of people in frontline communities, not choose a path that doubles down on their inequality. First, that means a focus on mitigation. The more we let CO2 levels rise, the more extreme weather events we can expect. Wealthy countries, communities, families can better afford to adapt to extreme climate change. And the more vulnerable communities are battered by extreme weather events, the more the inequality will increase. In the realm of adaptation, climate justice means prioritizing the needs of frontline communities. This is not a zero-sum scenario where one person has to lose for the other one to win. The solutions that help vulnerable populations are quite frequently good for everyone. Jason asked how climate change will play out in California. Check out the regional episodes to find out in more detail. You'll meet young people from each part of the state, hear about their communities, and learn how climate change is predicted to play out there. If you want to find out more about the ideas you heard about in this episode, check out the Future Imperfect page at calglobaled.org.
You'll find links to the IPCC reports, plus lots of other relevant articles and websites. Thanks to Nancy Freitas for her extensive guidance interpreting the science, and to Richard Duke, who composed and recorded the music. And if you visit the webpage, be sure to take a moment to look at the cover art by Sierra Claxton. Future Imperfect is a production of the California Global Education Project, without whose generous support this would not have been possible.